diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't really an end point, but it's a change that organizations ongoingly go through to discover where there are barriers. Hey everyone, and welcome to C-Network, the podcast. It's the podcast where we highlight diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals and the work they're doing to help their fellow employees feel C-Network. Hi, I'm Natalia Eileen, founder and CEO of C-Network, and I help businesses build more diverse, more inclusive workplaces. Today, I'm excited to bring to you a conversation I had with a fellow diversity, equity, and inclusion professional, Lori Nishiura McKenzie. Lori Nishiura McKenzie is lead strategist for diversity, equity, and inclusion at Stanford Graduate School of Business and co-founder of the new Stanford VMware Women's Leadership Innovation Lab. In her work at Stanford GSB, Lori is pioneering small wins to make the classroom experience more inclusive, to diversify the Stanford GSB community, and to foster new research in the areas of leadership, inclusion, and diversity. Lori and I discussed many aspects of her research because much of it touches upon inclusion and the need to discuss inclusive leadership strategies with leaders, the need to reduce bias in the workplace and in our hiring and promotion practices. Lori also touches on her experiences and her identity as an Asian American woman. We talk extensively about her experiences and how those have driven her into this work. I'm excited for you to learn more about her research because I know I really enjoyed this conversation. So without further ado, let's get to it. Okay. Hello, everyone. We're here with Lori Nishira McKenzie. We're so, so, so lucky to have her. And I can't wait to learn more about the research she's been doing at Stanford. So hello, Lori. How are you? Hi. So great to be here with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Me too. Okay. Well, let's get it started because I think this is going to be a packed one. And I think everyone might be curious first off the bat to learn more about you. So if you can tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your background, how you got to where you are, I think that'd be a good place to start. Sure. I, I think this journey began for me when I was quite small, actually. I was living in the Bay Area. My mom would take me to the library. It was my favorite treat. And as we were walking one day, these men leaned out of their car and did kind of fake Asian eyes and yelled aggressive fake Asian sounds at us. And I was scared and shocked, but my mom really kind of like let them know visually what she thought about it. And this was my gentle mom who never said a negative word about anybody. And I think I learned a couple things. Um, One was that there are people who would say, or do negative things towards me just because of the way I looked. And then from my mom, I learned that you stand up when that happens. And I think Mm. that was a really formative moment for me, even though I was only seven and I don't think I remembered it in that way. Mm -hmm. I think that was my message. And so of course my first job out of college was for a nonprofit. And then I went into marketing because I realized, you know, who gives the most money to nonprofits or companies. And I wanted to find out a little bit more and coming full circle, I found myself back at, at kind of a nonprofit at the university whose aim is knowledge for, for public and social good. So yeah, I think having that mission driven 
idea is something that I've always had. That's, I, I love that you started that with that anecdote. I appreciate you sharing it. Sometimes it's those moments that we remember most as children that really drive us forward to make our spaces more equitable and more inclusive. Um, so it sounds like, so now you're at Stanford and if you can tell us more about the work that you're doing there and how it relates to this conversation of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Absolutely. You know, I joined about 12 years ago and I really wanted to understand the landscape of women's empowerment in our country. You know, if you look globally and we think about creating change, we often invest in women and families. But in the United States, when you look at women on the brink, they're often considered part of the problem, not part of the solution. And that didn't make a lot of sense for me. Mm -hmm. So my work at Stanford was first to educate myself on how all of these dynamics work. And once I did, I saw a real link perhaps to marketing and to the work I do now. At a university, we create research. It's kind of like a product of knowledge mm -hmm. and we have to provide it on the marketplace of ideas. And so how do we get to know our consumers? Um, how do we know it will create the impact or the benefits that we want for them? And then how can we evaluate what we're doing to create change? And so the work I've done at Stanford has been a real partnership between the hardcore researchers and myself to think about the impact of what we're doing, not just the knowledge that we're creating. That's awesome. And I think we started talking a little bit off camera about the different segments of your research thus far. It would be lovely to hear more about them because I think they're so pertinent to the work that our listeners are doing every day in their workplaces. Do you mind going into detail? I'd love to. It's something I love to talk about. We have, um, I work at, I co-founded the Stanford VMware Women's Leadership Innovation Lab. It's probably the longest name you'll ever hear, uh, but each word is really important to us. And we do two primary streams of research. One is on creating inclusive workplaces and we have a model of change. So we believe that the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't really an end point, mm -hmm. but it's a change that organizations ongoingly go through to discover where there are barriers to women's advancement and then how we can create solutions to mitigate them. And when we say women, we mean women broadly defined across multiple marginalizations. And if we don't mind that intersection, sometimes when we come up with solutions, they don't necessarily also always include women. Mm -hmm. And we do things like uh, study something like how talent reviews go. How is it that women might enter talent reviews at a certain percentage, but get lower ratings when they exit the ca talent calibration process? We would then share that information with the managers in charge, co-design solutions with them, and then figure out how we can measure whether those solutions have created positive change. Yeah. And the other stream of research that we do is what we call empowering change agents. The primary model is a cohort-based learning model, which means, you know, what if you brought together groups of people committed to learning together? and put them through a curriculum that helped them build a lens and the tools to succeed in our gendered workplace, but then also create change. And so we've done that project with professional women. We're doing it now with high school and undergraduate women and learning a lot about the similarities because 
whether you're an individual or an organization, we believe these small steps and changes you make will build momentum and lead to larger change. Yeah. What's interesting is that both of those that you described, um, there's, there's an element to it that involves research into the way gender plays a role in the workplace. And I love that you touched a little bit on the need for recognizing intersectionality when you're doing such work. I don't know if there's more that you can speak to on that because I think that's an important point that we should just you know, uh, make sure all listeners are considering as they're thinking about the, the need to elevate these conversations around gender. You know, sometimes organizations think that we have one diversity and inclusion pie and we don't want to fight, slice it into such tiny slices for, for example, Asian women, Black women, Latinx women, women with disabilities. So they often say, let's just launch a women's initiative and intend that it includes everyone. Mm-hmm. And what they often discover is that it didn't necessarily help everyone equally, that mm-hmm. there were unique barriers facing women of color, for example, women with disabilities, and those unique barriers weren't addressed by these initiatives. And what we often recommend is starting from the insights you gain by asking women of color about their barriers and then deciding how to design an intervention. Likely what is preventing women of color from advancing has many similarities to where it has all women advancing. Mm. But if you don't start there, like Kimberly Crenshaw said, you inadvertently leave women out of those intersections. So we I always say start with intersectionality, even if there's a small number, mm-hmm. do qualitative research, find out about the barriers, keep those in your purview as you're designing solutions to make sure that you're not leaving those out and hopefully having every woman rise in your organization and every person rise in your organization. Yeah, that's, that's great for everyone to keep in mind, even just practically how to go about doing that. The qualitative side of things sometimes doesn't always come forward for people unless it's called out. And that's sometimes what's necessary in this work. So thank you for digging into that. I just thought it was helpful for everyone to think a little bit more about. And something else you mentioned while describing your two uh, big buckets of work uh, was the, the idea of giving managers and people leaders some tools and strategies whenever anything surfaced uh, in the the research that you did. Do you mind sharing uh, what kinds of tools and strategies you've seen leaders really gravitate toward or appreciate you sharing with them, perhaps because they're not as obvious or for whatever reason? Absolutely, so we, we often say that you have to first be able to see bias before you can block bias. And we know bias is a cognitive function And yet the representation of those biases plays out in many ways, you know, things that managers do every day, giving feedback, the words they use to describe their employees, the ratings they give to people are a representation of their biases. And so what we often do is start with education to explain how to see these biases. Mm -hmm. We do diagnosis to say, here's how it's working in your organization. And then say, what would you do with this in your world every day? Now, if we skipped that part and went, went straight to the tools, managers might bring those very biases into the tools and have the exact same Mm -hmm. disadvantages that they had before. 
So one of the tools, of course, is to create some sort of rubric or some way of consistently evaluating, for example, candidates that you're interviewing. Right. If we only had the rubric and didn't think about what criteria we're using, do the criteria tend to give an advantage to, for example, white men and disadvantaged women? Do we rate and view talent differently? So even if we're clear that the criteria is computer coding, Mm-hmm. We might view women doing computer coding completely differently than we view men. We might see him acting confident, even though that's not about coding, that's about our perceptions of how they're coding, and give that person a high rating. We might see her being thoughtful and asking questions and say, that seems weak. Even though it's not about our coding, it's our perceptions of how she's coding. Mm-hmm. So even if you have a rubric, if you're not thinking about how the way you view talent can also have bias in it, you'll use that tool and bring your biases right back into it. Maybe, you maybe not, but there's a chance that you will do it. So we, one of our research findings was that there's both the viewing and the valuing. Mm-hmm. The viewing is how you see coding ability and the valuing is then how you rate it. And if you don't talk about both sides of that, you can still bring bias into any sort of good process that you're trying to develop. Right. And it sounds like part of what you're describing too is making clear that this is a, a thing that everyone does, right? It's a cognitive uh, phenomenon that happens when we, when we lean on our biases, um, even if unintentionally. Uh, and usually that's that's what we're talking about, right? Unconsciously, unconscious bias. Uh, so I, I appreciate that you're thinking and talking with these leaders about normalizing it almost, of recognizing that this happens. And so we should really be aware of it. Um, is that something that you've seen people really gravitate towards or, or soak in or is in your work um, there a tendency for people to resist in any way? And if so, what does that look like? We have everyone. We have the willing people who have been looking for these strategies and insights and tools, and they are relieved or excited that we've brought them to it. And we see what we call resistors and deflectors. Resistors might be somebody who would say, you know, this is actually diminishing my ability to be a manager and I won't do it because now you've lessened my managerial acumen. And there are others who deflect it by saying, oh, others might be biased, but I'm not. It's not important. It's not significant. Sure, it exists, but it's just not pertinent to what I'm doing. So we see a range of people um, and and their engagement. Mm -hmm. What we hope is over time, the tools will just make sense. And even the deflectors and deniers will find value in, for example, using a standardized form and filling it out and hearing others' feedback before jumping to a conclusion, Mm -hmm. especially if they've ever had a candidate they thought was really great get shot down by others in the group. And then finding that the form is actually a really great way to work through those disagreements. Um, One woman said um, in, in one of our studies, I wasn't really into using the form. It seemed like a waste of time, but actually it's a huge time saver overall Mm. because as employees asked me how they got the ratings, as I'm collecting data the next year, it's given me an organized way to think about, 
doing my feedback uh, in, a, in a way that really serves my employees. So even the deflectors or the reluctant people can get on board if others are using the tools and it just kind of makes sense, managerial sense. Yeah. And maybe there's a bit of a snowball effect, right? As people start integrating it into their practice and others see that it's working well or that it's really helpful in some way, way shape or, or other, um, which is fun to see when working with leaders. I, I wanted to hear more because I know that we talked a little bit uh, off camera about how some of these um, work, some of the work that you do with these leaders is all about the ongoing nature of this and all about how this is a journey. This isn't a, a, the kind of thing that we just get to a destination and we check the box where we're inclusive leaders, we're we're really, you know, complete with our work. Exactly. This isn't that kind of a thing. Can you say more about that? And then how you talk about that with your leaders when you are coaching them through this? We, we often talk about a model of change. Sometimes people will say, well, what, what should I implement? What programs do you suggest we do? Mm-hmm. And well, there are so many great initiatives that have been proven to create change, we know that if they aren't customized for the local context, for how this organization, this team really operates, even the best programs might fail Mm -hmm. due to the fact that there's a different context, a different way that it works in this organization. So when we talk to leaders, we often ask a few questions, you know, change management is part of a successful diversity, equity, inclusion process. And we would ask questions about how you create change. How do you create change for more innovation? Or how do you adopt new methodologies in your organization? And then we kind of segue into the the idea that to create the culture that you want, the employee experience that you want, the equity that you want, in a similar way, we need to think about integrating these into the everyday practices of your managers and your leaders and your employees. Mm -hmm. So how do we think about that change management process? And as we know, you're always bringing in new employees. People are always getting promoted to managers. So to think that you can do anything in an organization, like we did leadership training once we're good. You know, you always see ongoing leadership training in every organization. In a similar way, we would then talk about how we might integrate that idea of change management as a tool for the diversity, equity, inclusion um, initiatives. And for most people, I think it makes sense. It can seem a little daunting. And we say, just pick one target area of change. Let's get good at this in in an area that's really important Mm -hmm. and start to use the insights of what worked to to build this out on a broader scale. Well, in describing the different areas of work that you've been leaning into, we've talked a little bit about one area that's related to bias and how bias shows up. We just talked a little bit about the change makers and the, the, the way of thinking around this as a change management problem, one that's ongoing. Um, I know that you also have done a lot of work with different identity groups and thinking about employee resource groups and how those can be a really important lever for people leaders at different organizations. Do you mind digging into that work that you've done? Sure, I'd be happy to. You know, we studied this 
cohort-based learning model. And one of the things we started to discover that that's very similar to how employee resource groups work. And so we believe our insights can help inform what, what can make a more effective employee resource group. And I think the challenge with them is that they have so many aims that often blossom organically. Sometimes it starts with, let's just have a space where we can be fully ourselves and feel affinity. And then sometimes the group will say, well, gosh, we have unique barriers. Let's work on our unique skill building and leadership capacity building. So it moves from affinity to leadership and a career advancement. Mm -hmm. And then they'll say, gosh, the organization doesn't have a lot of people like us. Let's help the organization attract people like us and develop policies that work for people um, with our particular barriers. And so that's a third possible goal. Now you're supporting the organization often by employees who haven't had formal training in how to um, design professional development curriculum, how to create organizational change. And yet it means so much to them. They lean in very heavily to, to that. So our idea is how could we help inform through our research some of the promising ways to support employee resource groups. And mm -hmm. perhaps we focus more on the, the development of uh, the, the group in developing their, you might call it a diversity, equity, and inclusion lens mm -hmm. to understand what this landscape of work is. We don't learn about bias in elementary school That's or right. college unless we're studying it. So how do we assume everyone is an expert at how bias plays out in the workplace. Even if I've experienced it, I might not have words or ways of talking about it. Yeah. And then we think about, well, now that you know, what skills can help you survive given this tilted landscape? And then what tools would help you change the landscape? Even if you aren't a leader, you have a sphere of influence. What might that look like? And so that journey, that arc of the journey is what we've studied and think it can be a very useful journey to think about what employee resource groups could do over time. Like year one could be affinity and education. Year two could be skill building. Year three could be organizational impact. It could be over the course of a year. But this arc, I think, is for me, I find it very exciting to think about supporting employees in these three volunteer roles they play instead of just um, being grateful to it. I think we should also support them. 100%. It's funny. It reminds me of some of the conversations I've had with different organizations and their employee resource groups and some, some of the questions that sometimes come up around these topics that reveal a desire, a passion and interest, but also a need to learn more about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, from a broader standpoint, because you're right, this isn't taught in, in, in school. And so um, while it's always great to support and have those kinds of um, pushes within an organization, it's imperative to give the training that you're describing to these groups as they emerge. So you started talking a little bit about some of the mindset shifts or even some of the long-term planning that you suggest for some of these groups. What, what skills or tools specifically do you dig into when you are supporting some of these ERGs in this way? 
You know, um, the, the last thing I want to say before I, I, I answer a question is that the other promising thing I've seen in this realm is that some companies are compensating the leaders of the ERGs. I know SurveyMonkey, for example, does this on a bonus basis. And at the business school, we're also working with leaders to ensure that the roles people play in supporting our DEI council are part of people's jobs and not an add-on. So um, in addition to supporting groups with education, I think it's also incredibly important to support the leaders to, to recognize, elevate, and compensate them for this, this work they're doing on behalf of the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really great research that was started by Kenji Yoshino out of NYU uncovering. And covering is a great place to start when having this conversation. So when you think about understanding the complexity of bias, if people haven't experienced it, you know, and it's it's possible to say there are people who are an underrepresented minority in an organization and wouldn't have seen what they're experiencing as bias. So to start the education from, you know, a point saying, let's, help you deal with the bias you're experiencing, that doesn't work for all employees. Some need to start to discover what you mean by that, right? We have our almost protective layers around us that have helped us survive our biases. And now you're asking me to, you know, cut through them so I can see what's really going on when this has been really successful for me. Mm -hmm. So uncovering is a great place to start because it talks about the fact that you know, I can't hide the fact and I don't want to hide the fact that I'm Asian, but I might background or reduce my kind of visibility of being Asian in a number of ways. I might not have any Asian artifacts around my desk. I might never eat with chopsticks um, in public unless we're at an Asian restaurant. I might not sit next to an Asian person at a table, I might go make sure I sit at the other side. And if I hear a joke, do I advocate for that person or do I kind of turn my back? And so there are ways that we reduce the risk that we feel a pinch that when people see me in a certain way, I feel like there's a disadvantage. So I try to, to mitigate it. Well, it turns out many people cover from heterosexual white men to our LGBTQ community, to women of color, So covering and uncovering is often a really good starting place to have the conversation because it's easy to imagine, you know, people who have been, for example, divorced might hide that from their coworkers for years, pretending that their partner is someone else or someone who has a child who has emotional illnesses might never explain why they can't go to certain events or not show up at certain times, right? So We're all covering something. And when we find that commonality, that's often a great starting point versus assuming just because you're an underrepresented, from an underrepresented group, you know that what that experience is. Mm -hmm. I know you're, you're describing this in the context of uh, employee resource groups and helping people understand how, how their experiences are maybe more aligned with this work in DEI than they even realized, you're also making me reflect on some of the work that maybe you started talking about related to inclusive leadership and inclusive workplaces and developing leaders, because I imagine a lot of the ways that we can help people begin to uncover 
has a lot to do with building a sense of psychological safety within a culture and allowing for people to kind of reduce that armor that they have, that they're bringing. Um, do, do you have any sort of insight into that side of things from a leader's perspective while these employee resource groups are doing the work of recognizing the ways in which they have been covering? How can organizations build that culture where they're actually inviting people to begin lifting those layers? That's, that's such an important point. People often think the goal of talking about covering is to uncover. And to your point, the reason why employees feel a pinch is that there could still be disadvantages in the workplace for them to experience it. And yet, even in an employee resource group, people are at all different levels of the organization. So what everyone can do is to be curious. We often don't even realize that somebody might not feel comfortable sharing about something or that they could be covering an element of their identity. And so one thing all leaders can do is foster a sense of curiosity and tell their own stories, a vulnerable, authentic story um, about their full self. Um, in terms of creating greater psychological safety, you know, what it really means is that people have a right to dissent in, and not feel that their position is threatened in an organization. And if part of my dissent is saying we need to give room for people to do and behave in certain ways that might currently be seen as unprofessional, but actually they are professional. They're just a different expression of professionalism. Mm -hmm. How do I create a space where people can say things to me? Like that's actually not professional. That's just a narrow definition of success and it's not inclusive. Mm -hmm. One way I, I've seen is to invite contradiction. Mm -hmm. So leaders often end conversations inviting consensus. Do we all agree? Does this seem like the right plan? You're unconsciously inviting people to, who align with you to speak up and inadvertently reducing the safety of people who want to contradict you to speak up. So if I were thinking about the culture and I said, gee, it seems pretty good. Everyone seems pretty good here, aren't they? And, and, and from what I see, I don't think covering happens here. You're not going to get that dissent. Mm -hmm. But if you said, you know, I would like to discover at least 10 ways our organization is not allowing people to be fully themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to create with my organization or my team ways to reduce these barriers, these burdens that people are, are playing. And I'm going to do it in a number of ways. I'm going to have an anonymous form where people can provide this because we might not have the safety yet to do it. I'm going to engage with the employee resource group and ask them for insights as leaders um, to advise me on, on these behaviors. And I'm going to open my door to anyone who feels like they want to confidentially tell me and they feel safe enough to do so. So if I did that in those multifaceted ways, I imagine I might get the insights I need to change my behaviors on my team and our team behaviors to be more inclusive. And then I told myself accountable, I'd make them visible. I'd discuss what strategies we're going to do together, what norms we might practices we would be developing. And I would check on them periodically to make sure that they're doing the impact that we would want them to have, right? So I think it's what you invite in is often similar to you. Mm -hmm. How do you learn to invite in what might contradict or 
be dissent from the way things have been running. Yeah, that that invitation of dissent sometimes can be easier said than done for leaders, especially leaders who are not as practiced in that. Uh, I can imagine, and of course, it's also the kind of thing that maybe once you try it, uh, you can slowly build the habit of doing so, I would imagine. Yeah, I was asked to give a presentation, one that I give a lot at a conference, and I said, you know, I'd love to welcome somebody else to co-lead it with me. My first thought was so that they can, you know, have some time to develop their own presentation and leadership style. And so, and it's someone who's much younger than I am. And I I met with them and said, you know, we're going to do this and explain to the flow that I traditionally do. And they said, hmm, what's that? And they said, well, I don't think you're making room for for all of people's gender expressions. I was like, tell me more. And we developed a sense that even if we master these ideas, you're still setting up, for example, a gender non-conforming person to feel like they're navigating inside of a narrow bind. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, that's not what I'm trying to do, but I can totally see that that's what's happening. What could we do so that doesn't happen? And we redesigned the presentation to be part presentation, part conversation about this bind. I think it's so much better than it would have been if I had just done my little shtick and had this person join me. And so, but it was uncomfortable. Like, oh, it was a little, it wasn't meant to be criticism, but it was a little bit. And then it was like, I have to learn something new. And, you know, it's not just a plug and play. Now I have to do some work. But at the end of the day, if my aim really is that my work makes a difference for everyone, this is exactly where I want to go. So I'm really grateful that somebody spoke up, but I had to find myself kind of, you know, making room for all of that too. And it sounds like you set up the environment, at least to a certain extent, at the very beginning to allow for, it, it almost sounded like uh, you invited that, that, that constructive feedback in the moment when it could have gone a different direction and you could have just uh, moved forward with what you had. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean, this is a workshop that people really like. So I could have said, you know, people like this. It works for so many audiences. Let's just stick to what we know. It's based on research. Mm-hmm. Um, I could have said that and it would have been sufficient. Absolutely. And um, I think one of the challenges in this work is that you never arrive. Kind of like organizations have to constantly evolve. Like there are terms I don't know. There are frameworks I don't know. There are insights I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm a somewhat public figure. So when I goof up, it's pretty visible and it's super embarrassing. And sometimes I think, oh my gosh, they're they're gonna think so badly of me. And um, you know, it's it's it can feel threatening. But I know if I don't lean into it, um when, when I once I said ability, you know, people with different abilities, and there was a world-renowned disability expert on the call who took me to town and said, nobody says that anymore. We say disability. Mm-hmm. And I, in front of, like, when I'm supposed, I had to just thank her. I, I'm changing my slides behind the scene as we speak. I, I get it. I, I'm sorry, this is 
the way I learned it where I work, I will never use that word again, but it was like, mm-hmm. but I, I make mistakes. I'm a human. I have biases and to do them publicly is hard, but I've survived. I think all of them, maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I have one question and then you just threw on another one for me, which was around uh, one thing that I've been reading recently was some of Brene Brown's research. And one of the elements of uh, courage and vulnerability that she talks about is learning to rise. And what you're describing is, I think, uh, something that you've, obviously it's always uncomfortable, but something that you've allowed yourself to become more comfortable with these moments when maybe we stumble or we say something or do something and knowing that that's kind of part of what it means to be human and to be in this work and to be having these conversations. But it sounds like you've at least been reflecting for yourself and also advocating for others to recognize that it's okay. We're going to maybe stumble a little bit and then rise from there. Um, I just, I just loved that that came through because I've been thinking about that recently. I love her work. It's really helpful to think about she doesn't necessarily come from an inclusion place and yet it is, it's completely inclusive. The, I love clear is kind. That's my mantra because I tend to be tentative about maybe saying really direct things. And I've discovered that it's not kind to let things slip. So I I love her work and I I don't think I could ever get enough of it. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Clear is kind and tough easier said than done, but important. My other question was about the challenges, because this sounds like a challenge you're describing that people can encounter in this work. And we've gone through a few different parts of diversity, equity, and inclusion work within organizations. We talked a little bit about um, hiring and some talent management components. We talked about building an inclusive organization through the ongoing nature of inclusive leadership. We talked about employee resource groups. There's so many things, uh, and you just surfaced one of the challenges that exists, which is going through this process and receiving feedback. Do you mind sharing one or two others that you see leaders experience in the work that you do with them? Yeah, um, one of, I think our challenges is that we have blind spots and we tend to focus on the initiatives that feel most familiar to us. And Unconsciously, that means not spending as much time on initiatives that aren't as clear in our focus. I think that's especially challenging right now where there's so much visibility about racial inequity. And we don't have, I think, a way to talk about unique differences, even in the Asian community. Mm -hmm. Saying Asian is almost a way of reducing Mm -hmm. the very different ways that uh, bias can affect us, whether we're from the U.S. or from a different country, whether we're Southeast Asian or East Asian. There's so many nuances. And so I think one of the challenges for DEI professionals is how do you make space for all that nuance, Mm -hmm. not diminish it, and yet move forward without giving the impression that we're taking a tiny little pie and doling out tiny little slices of it. I think that's a challenge I haven't successfully managed. I feel like that's 
the next phase of what we need to tackle in diversity, equity, inclusion is making as much space to very unique experiences people have mm-hmm. while still moving the entire diversity, equity, inclusion change forward. And mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to figure out how to communicate that, make space for it and deliver on it when I have blind spots myself where I didn't realize that I was grouping people together or mm-hmm. not making enough space for people um, that, 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 that they need. So that's a big challenge. I, I think will become even more critical mm-hmm. when we go back to work in person and have had all these completely unique experiences right. and right. now have to come back together in one in-person space. Right. And that speaks to some of the intersect, the intersectionality work and, and, um, you know, understanding and awareness that you spoke to early on, right? Just we're so complex and yet sometimes we are really narrow in our definitions. Um, I think we've gone through a lot of different topics here today. You've shared some challenges that maybe people are like, oh, yep, I feel that one. I need to work on that. What advice do you have for people leaders broadly and or DEI advocates and professionals generally? I think we often forget care. And I know that has become more popular for people to talk about care. And yet people in our profession are often the caregivers. Mm. And we are counted on one man. I asked, I said, oh, how are you doing during this time? And he said, no one ever asks me because I'm the one doling out the Mm. care. Mm. So ask each other how you're doing and really mean it. Create communities where you have some space to talk about the challenges and not be embarrassed. And I think build support. When I've made mistakes, people have had my back. How can we find spaces and create spaces where people have our back, where we learn through them, learn the important lessons, and we grow together. Mm -hmm. And if we did that for each other, we will have so much more energy to give to our organizations who are looking for our insights, leadership, and support to be the best people they can be. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. Thinking about and surfacing care, really prioritizing care in this work because it's it's draining and heavy and intense, but important nonetheless. Thank you so much, Lori. It's been lovely having you on. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing the good work you do.